the caterpillar has the DNA of the butterfly. Otherwise, it could not become a butterfly. So whatever hope or dream you have for yourself, that's the DNA of what's going to come next. The crappy thing is whatever worked before has to dissolve. Welcome to Insert Human. This is a show that is not for everyone. It's for seekers, people like you, hopefully, who are searching for solutions to your problems, the world's problems, and everything in between. The conversations to come are going to show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests, and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything, and in doing so, realize a better life and one day a better world. Greetings, everybody. Thank you for joining me yet again on another episode of Insert Human. I am here with a person who I have never met, but she just said, referred to me as a brother by another mother, sister by another mother. I think we, we've fostered a wonderful relationship through a, a series of calls and, and emails and Zooms. And uh, so with me today is Julie Jungawala. Julie is the president of the Academic Leadership Group, founder of the Institute for the Future of Learning. She's an instructor at Harvard. And she's also working on a, I don't know if you call it a project or an initiative, something called the reinvention mandate. What do you call that thing? A thing. <laughs> a thing. It's a thing. It could be a project. It could be an initiative, an idea whose time has come. Yeah. We, we don't have a noun for it just yet. So Okay. You know, and that's totally fine. <laughs> so one more thing, and we're going we're gonna to go right back to that, that question of what it is and why it is. But I will say to you, if you've listened to any of my other shows, the the commonality of virtually everybody I've had on, on Insert Human is an exploration of the question, how do we evolve as humans? How do we do a better job of inserting the truth of us into our realities in order to achieve more? Whether it's more for ourselves, more for our society, more for our company, more for our country, it doesn't much matter. And so Insert Human is, is, is an examination of our of our capacity to effectively reinvent ourselves individually, collectively. And, and so Julie, again, thank you for being on the show and thank you for this work because I think it's, as I just said to you, it's probably the most important work we can do as humans. So I'd love to just start with A, how you found yourself in this industry world space. And then I'd love to hear you, how you got into this reinvention mandate work that you're doing, which is like real, kind of hot off the press just happening now, right? Is that right? Yes, yes, yes. So a little two parts. Sure. So how did I get into this work? So like many th things in life, it only makes sense in hindsight, your resume being one of them. And right. I didn't plan this. Like most folks, my generation went to school, got good grades, then you go to college, then you get a job out of college. And Whenever I was in college, I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do, but my, my North Star, if you will, was, well, what can I do next that would open up more opportunities? And I've always loved to travel. And there was this program called the Explorers Export Marketing Program. This was back in the mid-90s. It was partly funded by the European Union, and its purpose was to really help develop undergrads, graduates, and to help Northern Ireland companies to build markets and research markets overseas. 
So I saw this as a great opportunity to build some skills and to travel and for that to be paid for. And I remember, I remember so clearly uh, the first week of the training that we had, which was really spectacular, really well, well executed. And two things happened. Uh, one, I felt like at the end of that week of training that I learned more in that week than I had in four years of undergrad study in business administration. And secondly, I remember there's a woman called Jillian and she was one of the facilitators. And I didn't realize there was this whole profession, if you will, in adult learning. I remember looking at her and thinking, she looks like she's having a lot of fun and I would love someday to be able to do what she's doing. So that launched me on the path of adult development, leadership development, designing, facilitating workshops, one-on-one coaching, organizational work. That was the genesis of that whole, I guess, I guess the next 20, 23, 24 years. And then I'm blanking on your second question, Chris. It was a two-part well, second. No, 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 it's fine. No, it's great. The second question was really about the more recent sort of beginning to dig at this question of, of reinvention. Like, I, I suppose, natural extension of your interest in, in personal professional development. Mm-hmm. But 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 just tell me a little bit about how you how you got into this, and you have a couple of people that you're working with on it. Just tell me about that. Sure. So it's it's a team effort. Three of us: Jenny Stein, Janine Matho, and myself. Janine right now is based in London, but currently in France. <laughs> really having a beautiful spot there to navigate through through COVID. Jenny's in New Mexico. I'm here in the Boston area, and we're three women who have gotten together to really delve into this idea of reinvention. And the reason why we're doing it right now is historically there has been a lot of conversation about the future of work and the half-life of skills. And all three of us have worked in talent development for multiple decades at this point. And some of us, myself included, in learning and development functions within large organizations. And what COVID has done is put jet fuel to this. It was always the case up until COVID that organizations, in particular large organizations, were thinking about and actively experiencing the blunt end of a skills shortage. With everything that's happening right now, AI, VR, the the exponential rate of technology, you might have seen that in Thomas Friedman's book, uh, for example, Thank You for Being Late, that graph that he has that he shows the exponential curve of technology and then where humans are. Now there's a whole lot of conversation as to where the heck did that figure come from and what is the research? Well, you know what? I don't care because I use it in all my presentations. <laughs> and I and I do acknowledge that he created it, but I don't point out where that human graph came, where the human curve came from. But it's plausible. To the audience, the point of the graph is there's a massive gap between the pace of technology and the curve going straight up and humans call it learning capacity, sort of more of a flat line. And yeah, so like obviously, we are here. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's this worry that that gap is, and part of that book, I think I told you I'm writing this book called Technology is Dead, and much of it is about, uh-oh, that gap is problematic. It's problematic. Yes. yes. And, and again, with all of the conversation about, and we're hearing more and more of it now, we, we need to reinvent and upskill and reskill Underneath that whole conversation, we believe is a larger question, which is how do you human beings reinvent themselves? Because it's not going to be the case that you can reskill or upskill and that's it, you're okay for the next few decades. You might be okay for three years, maybe five years, but this ability to continually reinvent in an ongoing way, what we're going to do through this work, we're going to interview 
a large number of people and conduct a large number of focus groups as well to really decode the black box of human reinvention. And we'll also do a pretty hefty literature review along with that to capture what we already know. But where I think we're really going to make a significant contribution is to identify how can organizations start to do this at scale. Because we've got whatever billion number of dollars being spent on learning and development, and it's so reactive, and it's the classic case of right. you know, preparing for the last war. Right. And my background, so I, I did my graduate work at Harvard Graduate School of Education, and a couple of courses that I took there still inform my work today. The primary one is Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy's work on adult development. And Keegan talks about the five stages of development, childhood, adolescence, socialized mind, self-authoring mind, and transformational mind. And according to Keegan's research, the vast majority of adults are either in socialized mind or somewhere between the socialized self-authoring transition and very few adults, and you need to live long enough to get there, get to transformational mind. And Can Keegan I interject a quick question there? Does that correlate with Maslow's hierarchy? It sounds like it might a little bit, you know, that Maslow's hierarchy of need, because the middle state is, is belonging, socialization. Mm -hmm. the, that's the third state. The fourth state is self-esteem, which you could argue is self-authoring. And then the fifth state is self-actualization, which you could argue is, I'm not, I'm not trying to force that. I'm just mm -hmm. curious if that parallel might, might exist there. Mm -hmm. It's a great question. The short answer is, I don't know, but it'll be yeah. fascinating to, to, to map both and also to get Keegan's view on that. Yeah. And, you know, I remember in the class, Keegan making the point that He's not saying that any one stage is better or worse than the other. What he's saying is what's important is that your level of consciousness, your level of meaning making is up to your environment. Right. So whatever the environmental demands are, is your level of meaning making equal to the task? Right. And I would argue with COVID that we are being invited to be much more self-authoring. Right. Right. And I, I do a lot of leadership one-on-one -on -one coaching work and teaching as well. And just in the last three to four months, there has been this building consensus that I'm seeing where people are saying, you know, is this what I really want to do? Is this the life that I really want to have? Even if we go back to some sort of regular office environment, do I want to go back to what that was or some version of that? And then it's, it's quickly followed up by, you know, there's this thing I've been thinking about, you know, this thing that you know, I thought about a while ago, or, you know, the whole question of, you know, why are you here? What is your what is your call to action in this world? And I believe we all have it, a uh, call to adventure in Joseph Campbell's parlance and the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. I just, I, there is less and less, I think, opportunity to follow the path. And I'll be 47 in May. So I think I was the last generation for whom you could get on that bullet train if you were lucky enough to be on it, to go to college and then graduate and then get what would pretty much be guaranteed a middle-class job and a mm -hmm. middle-class lifestyle, that guarantee is gone. And we're still perpetuating and perpetuating through the education system, college for all. And I disagree with that. I think we need to start opening up many more pathways for young people. And more importantly, we need to start building the skills much earlier on around self-sufficiency and thinking from first principles. And the question that I have always followed, and you know, it's through my work at the IFL, it's what's driving this reinvention mandate, 
is, is it possible to design, build, and live a life of your own choosing, regardless of demography? Hmm. And That's a big question. <laughs> and what I'm realizing the deeper I get into it is, and you, you know more, this, more about this than I do, Chris, the, the societal understanding and the societal pressures and the forces that we find ourselves amongst, how much choice are we actually making? Oh, very little. <laughs> and that being the case, what is it that we want to build? And I would say not only individually, but collectively right. as well. Yeah, I so mean, this, I, yeah. So the reinvention mandate work, so much of it will be how to build a learning organization at scale, but really bring it down to the individual level and organizations understanding the complexity of what it takes at a human level to reskill, upskill, to right, and to, and to build a life accordingly. I mean, there's so much in what you just said that I'm, I'm this this is. I said to you earlier, and I or I said I think I shared it with the audience. Like I think this this body of work, this body of thinking, is the most critical critical thing we can do as humankind. I'm not. I'm not talking about America. I'm not talking about the developed world. I'm talking about the entire world. Mm -hmm. And and if you really examine how we are, we we're oddly as a species, we're not very intentional. I mentioned the book that I'm writing. I, I started the first chapter. I talk about human progress, mm -hmm. and I it, this was not by design. I just started writing. I mean, I, the the book was by design, but what was in chapter one was not by design. And as I'm writing the first chapter, I start asking myself the question, or I start asking the reader the question, what is human progress? And what's alarming is there is no agreed to definition. <laughs> so as a species, we're like all existing at a macro level, and then go down to a micro level, my individual life, and you say to me, Chris, what is your intention? What is... What does your progress mean? And don't give me the answer, a bigger house. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people truly can't answer that question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think many people, majority of people are never asked that question. Right. And right. You know, I, I remember it was my first, my first job out of college and I had two job offers and I went to see my mentor because I couldn't decide which one to take. And I'll never forget, he said to me, Julie, put both of those offers to the side. What is it that you want? I think I just stared at him for maybe a good, you know, three minutes. Because <laughs> I, I didn't know. You right. know I you go to college and then you go to the careers office. And then there are the brochures, again, dating myself, there were physical brochures of the different job opportunities, the different graduate placement programs. And you pick one, maybe a couple and, and see where you're successful. But this whole notion of what do you want? Yeah, and I think I think again, society has kind of mucked things up because that question for the majority of people immediately takes them to the place of material material gain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's like so. I think that's pro obviously problematic, and and partly because we don't we don't teach this, talk about it as parents as peers to each other like we don't we don't talk about the meaning of a life and and the aspiration of a life through the lens of our human being mm -hmm. you know the, the way of our life the feeling of our life the the people in our lives we we tend to go to the the sort of the i think it's comf more comfortable to go to the structural 
you know, we want to retire in North Carolina, or I want a bigger house, or I really want a boat. And even when most of us know that that stuff does not actually translate into happiness. Mm -hmm. So, so there's almost like a lack of language in our society to talk about, to talk about this subject. Another one that relates to it. And and for the audience, Julie's a relatively new mom with a a three-year-old. And we're talking briefly about the challenges of parenting and COVID, which are real and big. But my experience as a parent, my ex-wife and I, a lovely person, we were together for 14 years, I guess, 13 years. We never once talked about what it was we wanted for our children. Hmm. And I think that's more common than not, that that mm-hmm. we don't, we talk about, well, we want them to be healthy, obviously. We want them to be safe. We want them to go to a good school. But we never got into the sort of intimate conversation about what kind of human do we want them to become? Mm-hmm. And I think, so again, I think as parents, we don't we don't have those conversations about our kids. I think we don't have those conversations about ourselves. And we don't have those conversations about our society. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of like if I were Joe Biden, I'd be I'd be I'd start with what's the outcome. Mm-hmm. Now the problem is he only has four years. You know, I think we need 40 years. Yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, and then you're like, oh, shit, the, the, you know, the construct of 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 our government doesn't really allow for what I would call long term vision. No, no, it's, yeah. it's more often than not reactionary to whatever the administration was before. Yeah, yeah. So, so going back to the reinvention mandate, what I hear and I love is this idea, is, is it sort of working with companies to try to help them in a way redefine what reskilling means? Or is it, I mean, that's, is that, I'm not, I don't want to put words in your mouth there, but that, that's what I'm hearing. Yeah, it's how to, how to do this at scale. And there's the sense that there's so much stuff that has been, there's a lot, there's a lot of signaling right now. A lot. So the word authenticity in the management literature has the number of times being mentioned has gone through the roof in the last decade. And authenticity, I, I go by Carl Rogers' definition, which means to be the author of one's own life. So that drumbeat is there. If you look at the Gallup data on employee engagement, the vast majority of people are disengaged in their work. And then if you go back in the data, it's, there's this precipitous decline. Gallup also captures data on student engagement in schools. And it's pretty high in kindergarten and it basically plummets as you get through high school. So in many ways, there's this sense of this, a system that as you progress through it, you're being asked less, what is meaningful to you? And there's less of a meeting the human being, the individual where they are. So this, we don't have any data to share yet. We're in the very early stages of this project. So we are very open to following the data to see where it takes us. I foresee a pretty big reorientation of learning and development functions within large organizations. And again, some very early signaling there is how a significant number of organizations are throwing out the appraisal process. That's extrinsic motivation. If any sane person if my compensation is tied to me hitting my goals, I'm going to choose goals that I, I'm pretty sure I can hit. Right. I'm not going to think too far out of the box and you know, right. stretch right. beyond what I think is possible. Right. And then if we go further back in history, I'm thinking 
to Rudolf Steiner, the founder of the Waldorf School, uh, back when he gave his opening lecture in Stuttgart, because in 1918, he talked about the importance of depth of feeling, power of thought, and strength of character. Depressingly, that was over 100 years ago. And I don't think we've evolved a huge amount since then. And oh, by the way, that model was originally designed for the factory workers at the Waldorf factory. Maria Montessori, another progressive, she built the Montessori model in the slums of Rome. So these more progressive models have migrated to the middle, arguably upper middle class over the years. So there is a, there is a bigger call, I think, to make this kind of information and resource, whatever it ends up being, available to the masses. And our research is going to focus on white collar and blue collar workers, ordinary people who have reinvented themselves multiple times over the course of their career to learn what we can about what are some of the golden threads that run throughout, what are some pieces maybe on the periphery, environmentally, what are the supports, what are the obstacles to this kind of reinvention. And the backdrop of it all for us is because we do organizational work is what does this mean for talent recruitment, engagement, development, retention? And those are big questions. I mean, I think you've touched on a couple of things that I wanted to comment on. One is this notion that I think many of us, at least my age, your age, maybe my kids' age, they're all in their 20s, is that we, we go to school and then some percentage of us graduate from high school and then some per smaller percentage go to college and some percentage of that graduate from college. And that is the end of our learning. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that is still pervasive. That sensibility is still pervasive. And I think what you're talking about, which I subscribe to, is the idea that no, 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 that is not the end of your learning. In fact, it's just the first phase of, of the rest of your life. And that when you're 50, you're going to be re you're going to be learning, you know, new, new careers, you're going to be learning new capacities, not just to, to hold a job, but the, but dimensional learning that allows you to achieve greater levels of fulfillment, satisfaction, maybe more intimate, caring relationships, you know, whole person stuff. Yes, yes. You're reminding me, I think it was the previous dean of Harvard's Extension School. He asked the question, what would a 60-year curriculum look like? That's six yes. zero. I think that's the orientation that we all should have. And, and again, I go back to your previous comment about you go to school, some graduate, some go to college, you know, it's a sorting mechanism. Right. And it really should be structured in such a way that it unleashes the potential right. of every single child in it, because every single child has potential and a unique set of skills, knowledge, mindsets to be cultivated, not in accordance with some standardized model, but starting with the child, who are you? And what are you uniquely good at? What brings you alive? And how might we use that as fuel to help you move forward in the world and to build a life from that place? Yeah. So on the one hand, I think what you're saying and I support is the system is not prepared to support this outcome. 
mm-hmm. whether it's the formal system, K-12, higher ed, corporate training programs, you know, that it's just not, <laughs> it's kind of back in the, in the fifties, you know, and what you're talking about is like today and forward. And so, so that's, that's certainly going to be a challenge. The second part, which, which I think maybe you're going to shush out in your interviews with people is how do you foster the motivation? Because learning requires, and adult learning anyway, I believe requires some level of curiosity. You know, when you're like nine years old, you just go to school. You don't even know that you're, you don't even know that you have a choice to learn or not to learn, mm-hmm. right? It just is. And that even mm-hmm. extends into college. Whereas later in life, you know, it, it's more of a choice. And mm-hmm. so- I'm just going to be, I, I know you haven't done the work yet, but I'm just curious to know, well, you've done a lot of, of, of coaching with, with people and different development paths. Can you motivate? Can you motivate intrinsic motivation? You know, can you, that's, that's a yeah. stupid statement, but. <laughs> so I'm going to push back on the question a little bit in just a moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. With intrinsic motivation, I go back to probably our mutual friend, Dan Pink. And when he talks about autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Right, right. A lot of folks feel like we don't have autonomy. I don't have choices. Right. It's hard to orient yourself towards mastery if you're not clear on purpose and a sense of, you know, 10 years from now, add 10 years to your life. Look at that number. Where do you want to be? What kind of work might you be doing? Who do you want to be in your home? You know, where is your home? Right. Asking those kinds of questions from first principle. Right. Uh, but to your question, I, I don't see intrinsic motivation as being the bigger challenge. What I see more often is folks saying, I can't, I, I don't want to go there because I don't want to disappoint myself. I don't want to go for what Bingo. I really want because what if I don't hit it? Bingo. Yeah. And that brings us back to, again, back to Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey. It's the fundamental shift from the known world to the unknown world. And that's, that's the deal that education sells, which is guarantee of a known world. Mm. The sense of a guarantee that if you go to college, you'll get the middle-class job and there'll be a path that is set out for you. Again, used to be the case for a lot of people is no longer the case. We are all thrown right now courtesy of COVID, into like a PhD level of unknown world. None of us knows you know, a month from now what, what the situation is going to be. So hmm. as a collective, we've been thrust into this. And it's why I'm really eager with Jenny and Janine that we embark on this work so we can start to give folks some, to show the innards of the black box and to provide practical tools and resources that will help people. And again, it used to be the case that Self-help, that aisle in the bookstore. Those of us who remember going to bookstores, <laughs> I'm pretty covered. Right. Uh, that was optional. It's it's just less and less optional. Right. And I think that the biggest nut to crack is inviting people to think about and then have faith in their dreams. Yeah, I love that, and I love. I think what you're saying is because we are all have all been thrust into the unknown our ability or willingness to embrace the unknown is greater. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the pre-COVID state, the unknown was a scary monster. And even if the known was unsatisfactory, it was known. Mm -hmm. And therefore we held on to the known 
right? I mean, is that the sort of the? I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. Is that the lo- the logic here? Is that we're we're becoming more comfortable with the unknown and therefore more willing to step forward into our unknown? Yes, I I see I see this as, as being in a liminal state. Mm. Something has ended. There was a pre-COVID world. I mean, you, you probably have the experience, like many of your listeners, where if you're watching a movie now and you see like a crowded restaurant or people you know on a subway train you know shoulder to shoulder it just seems weird nobody's wearing a mask they're all terribly close so crazy and even with the vaccine and establishing some herd immunity you know are we going to go back to handshakes when you when you meet strangers you know a lot of stuff has ended and whatever is happening next whatever the new thing is going to be that is revealing itself on a day-by-day basis right and there is incredible power, I think, in a liminal state. It's like a portal, if you will. And I always go back to my favorite metaphor of the caterpillar and the cocoon and the butterfly. In the cocoon, the caterpillar dissolves. And I remember as a kid thinking, you know, the caterpillar doesn't dissolve. The caterpillar just goes to sleep, grows wings, and then comes out of the chrysalis. And was kind of disturbed when it was in one of my classes at school. The teacher said, no, the caterpillar actually dissolves. I didn't know that. <laughs> so that is scary, scary as hell. Scary as, as hell. To dissolve. But here's the, here's the kicker. The caterpillar has the DNA of the butterfly. Otherwise, it could not become a butterfly. So whatever hope or dream you have for yourself, that's the DNA of what's going to come next. The crappy thing is whatever worked before has to dissolve. Right, right. It brings up all of the fears, uncertainties, and doubts. And there's always a reason, always a usually good logical reason why I'll not do that today. I'll, I'll put that off until tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. One of my um, often referenced expressions is the irony of self-help is nobody can do it alone. Oh, I like that. <laughs> Well, back to the book story, right? Like self-help. Okay, I'm going to go read this book and magically, yeah. magically I will reinvent myself. And I, my experience in my own reinvention, which I definitely had a reinvention and continue to have reinventions, is it takes a village to do this. Mm-hmm. And, and it's probably premature to ask you this question since you all are just starting out on, on the reinvention mandate. But do you envision sort of a community component of this from a support and... In other words, the corporate sort of manifestation of a reinvention system probably is not people taking a class, right? Like there's got to be some sort of ongoing, organic, supportive, other people helping other people. I, I, I Again, this may be unfair since given where you are, but mm-hmm. is that is that sort of resonate with you as a, as a likely likely part of the solution, if you will? Yes, I have seen it time and time again. And in, in my own life, none of us does any of this alone. You know, it's this, and I think it is an American individualistic thing. I, I love this country. I became a citizen of this country and no pioneer came here alone. <laughs> right, right. They came in communities for the most right. part. Right, that's so, an excellent point. So that being the case, I my hope would be, and we will, I'm pretty sure this will be one of the, the first things that we do, is to build a community that will have this flywheel effect where if I see somebody like me in that community and they're stepping out there towards their hopes and their dreams, that gives me more permission to do the same. 
and really leverage what I think would be a very positive contagion to help that. And I, I think it will probably be necessary to build these kinds of communities outside of the corporate structure. Right. Right. In order to enable that. Yeah. So they transcend the corporate relationship. It's, 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 mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, uh, it's a life, a lifetime proposition. So I have to ask you, I'm mindful of the time and, and this has gone so quickly. It feels like we just started talking. <laughs> this is what happens to us. So I will say you mentioned the Dean of, of the extension school and his or her comment about, a 60 year, what does a 60 year curriculum look like? Which I love that question. How well do you think academia, higher ed, K-12 is is sort of seeing what you see? I'm, I'm hoping that the answer is going to be yes. Or do you, do you think it's got to come from corporate? It's got to come from other resources because the current system, at least in America, is maybe struggling with other stuff or, you know, mm -hmm. like what's, what's yeah, the prognosis? What's the prognosis for for Theodore in terms of the the academic you know the education experience he's going to get versus what you envision as you know what you want him to have? Yeah, I have no idea what Teddy Bear is going to be experiencing a decade from now. What I do see is there are folks within the system, you know, K through sixteen and beyond, who get this, who got this before I got this, you know, who have been who have gotten this for for decades. The challenge is. Any system is designed to get the outputs that it's currently getting. And a lot of these systems are immune to change. They are built to be self-perpetuating. Self and I have morphed my work over the years where I work one-on-one -on -one with folks, change agents in the system. And then I also work with folks on the outside of the system. And I believe if you were to decide where to put your efforts put your efforts into building a compelling alternative. Right. Versus trying to address what currently mm -hmm. is. Yeah. 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 That's so. A parallel system. There was a fantastic comment. Kelly Young is the president of Education Reimagined. And before the winter break, she put out a video saying that we need to build a parallel system, that we can't ask the people currently in the system who are completely exhausted. Mm with having to prop up the current system to do the work, the transformational work of building the new. Yeah. And I, I never thought about it from that perspective before, but the work that, I'm, that I do right now in working with educators, they're being asked to, it's extraordinary efforts to keep things going. Just as, as they, they are. yeah. Just yeah, as yeah, they yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. And these are mission focused people. You know, education is in their heart and their soul. We often junk work, joke that we're learning junkies and we can't ask them on top of everything else. Oh, by the way, go forth and transform the system. Right, right. Yeah, no, a parallel, yeah, parallel path makes, makes a lot of sense. So let me, let me, uh, I, I got to let you go. I don't want to let you go, but I got to let you go. How can people support your work, get in touch with you, read your stuff? Like what's, what's, the, what's the call to action for listeners that are motivated by what you're working on? Sure. So the website should be up in a week or two. It's a one-pager website at this stage, and it's at reinventionmandate.com. Also, my organization, my partner, Jenny, and I, uh, the Academic Leadership Group, so academicleadershipgroup.com. And folks can always connect with me via LinkedIn. And we'll be writing about the Reinvention Mandate on Forbes as well. So if you Google Reinvention Mandate on Forbes, you should start to see. I think there's an article coming out in a couple of weeks, so we'll be... 
posting there with some regularity. That's great. And, you know, two last things. One is I, I volunteer my myself for to support whatever, if, if you need hands, legs, brains, whatever you need, because yeah. I really, and then the, the last thing is what really what I start, said at the beginning, which is if any of us are unhappy with the state of the world, the state of our society, the state of America, if you're listening in America, I think we have to look at our system of development. I think we have to look at how well or not well we are motivating ourselves to continue to grow and learn, not just to ensure that we have livelihoods, but to ensure we have lives of meaning and worth. Mm -hmm. And I think it's not any individual or institution's fault that we're not in a very good place. No. But I think it is our shared responsibility to try to do something about it, which probably, I mean, Theodore or Teddy might benefit from that. You know, we're not going to benefit it from it, but that's okay. You know, this is for future generations. And I really do believe it's the most important thing we can work on. So thank you for being you and for giving all that you were given to this cause, because it is a cause. Mm. And it, as I said, it's the most important cause we have. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening today. If you're in search of more opportunities to realize positive change in your life or work, and you find what I have to say helpful, you can always subscribe to my show, check out one of my new salons that are weekly virtual gatherings of like-minded folks. You can read some of my writings or just listen to one of the talks that I've given around the world over the last couple of years. And you can do it all at chriscolbert.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my ongoing email updates. When you do, you'll receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about-to-be-published book, Technology is Dead. Again, it's all available at chriscolbert.com. Thanks again for listening today, and I look forward to connecting more in the days ahead.